We pick up our series in Acts chapter uh, 10 this morning where we are looking at uh, uh, Peter preaching <clears throat> to a man who lives far from Jerusalem. He's a man who's a Roman military guard, a centurion, who God has moved in his heart and now is bringing Peter to share the good news of Jesus Christ. In fact, to share the story of Easter with them. And this morning, I want to look at that text before us because God has a word for us with regards to the joy that Easter brings. And so if you don't have a Bible this morning, grab that pew Bible and the pew rack in front of you. You can find our passage on page 919. But here's our, our text this morning. I'm going to go through verses 34 through 43 this morning, and then I'll ask for God's blessing on our time, and we'll jump right into the Word. So Peter opened his mouth to Cornelius and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. As for the Word that He sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, He is the Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through Jesus' name. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we thank you for this celebration. The greatest day for any Christian, the celebration that you no longer are in the grave, but after dying for us and, and laying down your life for us, that you would be raised from the grave on that first Easter Sunday. Lord, we thank you for the hope and the peace and the joy that should fill our hearts as Christ followers. Lord, I thank you that we get to celebrate this. I thank you for the Christians all over the world who are celebrating this momentous and miraculous event. Lord, I thank you for the other campuses. Lord, I pray for Pastor Nico at, at El Camino. Lord, I pray for Pastor Travis at our Aurora campus. I pray for Pastor Phil at our um, Indian Creek campus and Pastor Steve at our Plano campus, that at all the campuses of Village Bible Church, both here and there, Lord, that you would speak your word to your people in a powerful way and that people will be changed. Lord, I think of uh, the different churches around us that are proclaiming the message and the joy of Easter. I think of Christ's community, and I think of uh, Harvest Bible Chapel and Calvary West, Lord, and, and other churches in our area. And Lord, I just pray that you would bless them, that you would fill their uh, churches today with great rejoicing and life change. Lord, thank you for their partnership in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we pray that you'll be with them. Now, Lord, as we gather, as we come together now as a people, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us and remind us of the joy that the gospel of Jesus Christ brings. Lord, we're thankful for what you're doing in our midst and give you the glory for it all. In Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen. Well, the, the Holy Week, the week prior to Easter, was a week of unbelievable ups and downs. 
And while we talk about joy and we sing of hope and, and of peace on Easter Sunday, the days preceding that day was anything but joyful and hopeful and peaceful. The disciples had experienced really the culmination of an entire uh, three years of ministry in that Holy Week. And it started out on a high note. Palm Sunday, we remember that Jesus entered into Jerusalem with people shouting and proclaiming that He was the one who had come as the Messiah, the one who had come in the name of the Lord. But that parade and that celebration would quickly fade. And it wouldn't take many days for the disciples to know something had gone terribly wrong. While Jesus had told them that all of this was going to take place, they had missed out that things were going to get worse before they would get better. And that first Holy Week was filled with confusion and betrayal and a loss of trust and a loss of faith. It led people to be confused. It led people to to wonder, really, is there any hope? Those disciples, as they saw the arrest of Jesus and the betrayal of Jesus and the crucifixion and death of Jesus, found themselves not only despairing, but coming to a place of utter despondency. By Easter uh, Saturday, the Saturday before Easter, it had become a place of great isolation. The eleven, now that Judas was no longer, the eleven found themselves holed up in an upper room. They were scared for their lives. They had wondered where their leader had gone. They had lost hope. They had believed that the one who had changed their lives, the one who had transformed them, this Jesus who had taught them of what it was to live the kingdom of heaven here on earth, was now dead. That is until Easter Sunday. But I want you to recognize before we get to the good news that the Holy Week events, even the difficult times, even the hard things that the disciples and Jesus experienced is a reminder for many of us that in this life we will have trouble. In this life, many of us have come in on this Easter Sunday and we are sensing betrayal. We are feeling loss. We are feeling a sense of unmet expectations. And it is a reminder to every one of us that apart from Jesus, we are going to struggle in this life. Apart from Jesus, we are going to struggle to find peace. We're going to struggle to find joy. We're going to struggle to find hope. And we are reminded by the events of this week that life apart from Jesus is a hopeless endeavor. That is, until Easter Sunday. Word began to get out that the tomb had been opened up. That the tomb was empty. The women were the ones to see it first and they spread word and Peter and John came to the tomb and it was empty. But that didn't answer the question. Where was Jesus? Now I wonder if they started to believe and started to recognize that all that Jesus had said was now coming true. But it wasn't until that evening that things would begin to change. That the storm clouds that were uh, being experienced by the disciples would roll away and a great sunshine would come into their lives. You see, it wasn't until that moment that Jesus was before them, standing in front of them. It wasn't until he, Jesus said, let, your, let you uh, reach out and touch my hands and touch the wounds of the cross that their hearts began to be filled with joy. Immense joy. 
unspeakable joy. It would be that joy that would lead Peter and the disciples to go and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ for the rest of their lives. You see, the singular uh, theme of Easter, I believe, is one of joy. One of great joy, and I'm not the first person to come up with that. Uh, Many preachers before me have articulated. Jonathan Edwards, the great colonial American pastor, said this, The resurrection of Christ is the most joyful event that has ever come to pass in human history. Charles Spurgeon, a British pastor, put it this way, No man can ever take away from me the joy that Christ has risen from the dead. You see, the resurrection is the most joy-filled event in human history, and it demands our attention. Contemporary writers speak of the joy that comes. John Piper, a pastor in Minneapolis, says the point of Easter is that God is in the process of clearing away this world of all its heartbreak and inaugurating joy in our hearts. Tim Keller, a pastor from New York, says this, Christ's resurrection not only gives us joy for the future, but it gives us a joy that we can handle the scars that we have right now. You see, the theme of Easter is one of joy. This God who put on flesh and made His dwelling among us, who lived a perfect life, who died a criminal's death for our behalf, has risen from the grave, and it should create in us the greatest sense of awe and worship. But let us never forget the greatest joy that we have as Christ followers. But I want you to notice a couple things that led Peter in his word to Cornelius about this joy. The first thing I want you to see, and there's three things I'll look at this morning. The first one is that this joy of Easter is extended to all people. It's extended to all people. Notice in our first verse of our passage, Peter, preaching to a man he's never met before, utters some words that seem a bit odd. He says the following. He opens his mouth and he says, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. Now, let's just stop there for a moment. That seems like an odd way to start an Easter message. But if you understand what's going on in the book of Acts, you will understand that this is a momentous occasion for Peter and for that of the church and the gospel. You see, Cornelius was a man who, who feared God. Maybe he had some understanding of God, but we are told that he doesn't understand or know Christ. And so Peter then, by an angelic messenger, is sent to go to where Cornelius is at and to tell him the good news of Jesus Christ. Now here's a problem. Peter was under the understanding, Peter was under the mindset that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Easter message, were for Jewish people alone. And who could blame him? For all those years, Israel stood as the singular nation that stood uh, and affirmed God, Jehovah, as being the one true God. It was through Israel that the prophets spoke and proclaimed the oracles and, and word of the Lord. And Peter now is in a home of a Roman, the occupying force of that day. A soldier, nonetheless, who has been given the task of keeping the peace. A centurion was one who oversaw a hundred soldiers and whose job was to squelch and, and destroy anybody who got in the way of Rome. And now Peter is standing before this man 
And he's telling him the good news of Jesus Christ. And he says something that is lost on deaf ears and falls on deaf ears today. And that is that God shows no partiality. And that partiality is, is seen in regards to, first of all, culture. And it's seen also in our corruption. What God is extending to all of us, no matter where we are from or, or what nation we uh, grew up in or what our skin color is, is that God wants us to know this joy of Easter is for all people. Now, this would have been hard for Peter because he's standing in the room of the enemy. Cornelius was his enemy. He was a Roman. Cornelius was a part of a culture that was filled with all kinds of debauchery and sin. Cornelius was, was everything that was wrong with the world. Israel wanted to be independent, and they had this occupying force all about them. And so their culture and their traditions and their backgrounds became a part of the cultures and backgrounds and traditions of the Jewish people. And many of them went totally against God and His Word. So here he's standing in front of an individual whose total job is to see to it that those customs, those traditions, and those ways of life are lived out by everyone with the threat of sword. And what Peter says is what I've come to learn, and what I've come to recognize is a word that the church needs to hear now more than ever. That Jesus Christ and his gift of salvation is given to everyone, red, yellow, black, or white. It is given to Republican and Democrat. It is given to old and young, rich and poor. It is given to the educated. It is given to the non-educated. It is given to those who are deep in their sin. And it's given to those who pride themselves on their religious qualifications. The salvation that Jesus Christ gives is given no matter our culture and no matter our sin. And we need to praise God for that because God didn't have favorites. God didn't say, listen, I'll extend my love, I'll extend my joy in a little way. You can have a little of it. When I was younger, my older brother and I were staying at my grandparents' house, and we were in a bedroom where we were going to be sleeping that night, and there were two twin beds. And my older brother said, listen, this is my room, not your room. And I said, well, where am I supposed to stand? Where am I supposed to sleep? He says, you can sleep on your bed, but every other space is my space. I said, well, how am I supposed to get to the hallway? He says, it's it's your problem. And he began to cordon off all the area that was his, and this little area was mine. And I got to tell you this morning that God doesn't do that with his love. Jesus doesn't do that where he says, okay, I'll give you just a part of my presence, a part of what I'm doing. Jesus says, my room is your room. My presence is your presence. My kingdom is your kingdom. My inheritance is your inheritance. And he extends that to every one of you. No matter your background, no matter the wrong decisions you've made before, God's grace and the joy he gives this Easter is given to all people. And he invites every one of you to be a part of it. The second thing that we see this morning that is so critical to us finding joy this Easter is that joy is not only extended to all people at Easter, but the joy of Easter is evidenced. It is evidenced by certain facts. It's evidenced by certain facts. Notice that Peter goes on and he says, okay, Cornelius, I'm going to tell you a story. And I'm going to tell you a story that goes back some time. He says, notice, he says, as in verse 36, as the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, 
you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. Let's just stop there for a moment. What we need to recognize and know is that the story and the accolades and the telling of who Jesus was was known throughout the Roman world. That this Roman centurion, 80 miles north of uh, Jerusalem, knew about who Jesus was, knew what he had done, knew what his life had been a part of. I want you to recognize that there may be some skeptics in our midst today who wonder about the historical nature of Jesus and say, this is a a made-up man, a made-up person that churches have made up. I want you to recognize that antiquity, historians show us time and time again that even though they didn't believe in Jesus, that they knew Jesus was walking and living and doing the things that he was. In fact, one particular one, very well-known secular historian named Josephus says numerous times in his writings, I was not a follower of his, but Jesus went about Judea and he shares almost word for word exactly what Peter says about Jesus. He went about doing good, he went about healing and ministering to people, and he died on a cross, and many of his many people around believe that he rose from the grave. That's a secular historian that lived during the time of Jesus who articulated it. Jesus was well known. He is not a fairy tale. He is a historical figure who did what he said he did. Now, Peter says, I want to tell you the story, and I want to tell it from the beginning. And he starts out by speaking about Jesus and the virtuous mission that Jesus lived out. Notice he says that he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Peter says, listen, I I came on the scene, and notice that Peter says two different times, we are eyewitnesses. We are the ones who saw it. So Peter's not sharing a word that is from someone else. He's He is the horse's mouth, if you will. He tells Cornelius, this is exactly what transpired. I met up with Jesus three uh, years, for three years. Jesus was 30 years of age. We don't know how old Peter was. But Peter's now going back about three or four years from Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection in Acts 10. And he says, listen, I meet up with Jesus about seven years ago. And what I see is Jesus going about, and what he did as I watched him is he went about the area of Galilee, and he taught people, and he ministered to people. Now notice what Jesus did. He was doing good. So Jesus is out and he's serving people. Now we know from the gospel narratives that Jesus goes about and he teaches people about the kingdom of God. He teaches us to love our neighbors as ourselves, how to get right with God. And people love his teaching. They flock to his teaching. They love and thousands upon thousands sit for long periods of time to hear his teaching. And they're mesmerized as one who speaks on behalf of God. But Jesus proclaims not only a great message, but he does some amazing things. He starts healing people. He heals the blind. He heals the lame. He, he makes the leper whole. He ministers to people not only who have ailments of the body, but also ailments of sin, ailments of the heart. He takes people found in, in red-handed in their sin, and he forgives them, and he loves them, and he calls them to obedience. We are told that Jesus raised a couple people from the dead. 
And Jesus goes about ministering. He heals people from uh, demons that torment them night and day. And you see this virtue upon virtue. No sin. You see no guile within him. No deception. He does this all in front of both his followers and his critics. And what does it cause Jesus living out this, serving in this way? His enemies, the religious leaders of the day, want him dead. And they accomplish that. They accomplish that through the betrayal of Judas. Judas betrays Jesus and Jesus is arrested. They put together a, uh, a brutal court system that calls him uh, to task for sins that he hadn't committed. They say all of his healings and all of his miracles are the works of the devil and they consign him to death on a cross. Now notice Peter says they hung him on a tree. They hung him on a tree. Now you need to understand that uh, the joy of Easter is found, first of all, in the sad and agonizing death of Jesus on the cross, the great symbol of the Christian world. The cross reminds us of an execution device. It tells us how, Rome's, uh, how Romans killed their enemies. The most hardened of criminals would be hung on a cross. That is, that their hands would be uh, placed uh, elongated and their hands would be nailed and spiked to a wooden cross. Their feet would be overlapped together and a spike would go through their feet. Now you say, well, why, why would that kill somebody? Medical doctors say that the form of death wasn't the spiking as excruciating as that would have been, but that the way that someone died by being hung on the cross is they suffocated to death because they were uh, stretched out. They had the inability uh, to allow their diaphragm to rise and fall when you would breathe in and out. And so over a period of hours, you would just run out of energy of lifting yourself up on that foot of the spikes of the foot that you would just die of suffocation. Now, here's the crazy thing, the amazing thing. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews that Jesus went to that cross. Jesus went to that execution, the book of Hebrews says, with joy in his heart. Why? Why would any man, why would God himself want to die with joy in his heart in that way? Because this crucifixion was what uh, the Bible says is a vicarious crucifixion. Write that down. Vicarious is just a big word for in the place of another. You see, Jesus went to the cross not for his sins, but for your sins and for my sins. And he took those sins and he placed them on the cross and he took the shame and he took the penalty on that cross for you and I. And he knew by laying down his life that you and I might have eternal life and a new found relationship with his Father in heaven. And so with great joy he goes to the cross scorning its shame, fighting through the pain and the sorrow that would be brought. And he goes to the cross so that you and I might have life. But Peter doesn't stop there. Notice he says he was hung on a tree. And in verse 40, he says, but God. And that's such an important, between verse 39 and verse 40 is such a huge thing. Because in verse 39, Peter has lost his faith. In between verse 39 and verse 40, Peter has lost hope. But now looking back, he can say, but God. When I had lost my hope, when I had lost my faith, God came and He raised Jesus Christ on the third day from the dead. 
and he made him to appear. It wasn't like he just disappeared and was never to be seen before. For that would leave us amazing questions. Well, where did he go and what did he do? Conspiracy theories would be all over the place. But Peter says, but we saw him. Verse 40, on the third day he was made to appear, not to all people, but to those who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. For 40 days, Jesus would walk and talk with his disciples. Not just the 11 closest disciples, but at one point over 500 people saw him as the resurrected Savior and Lord. And here's the amazing thing. The joy of Easter comes not just because of the virtuous mission or the vicarious crucifixion, but the victorious resurrection that takes place. We celebrate, we proclaim, not a dead Savior, not a dead martyr. Unlike all the other world religions, we cannot go to the tomb of our great leader because there is no tomb anymore. The tomb is empty. And Jesus Christ now is seated at the right hand of the Father and one day will return. And because of that great victory and that great resurrection, you and I can have hope. We can have joy. Now some of you skeptics maybe who are out there may say, well, I want more proof. Well, the proof is in the eyewitnesses. Why in the world would Peter go from having no faith, no hope, to being filled with such immense joy that for the rest of his life and the life of all the disciples, that they would go and spread the good news of Jesus Christ and live out and tell the world of this if it wasn't true. One of my favorite authors is a man by the name of Charles Colson. And Charles Colson, uh, or Chuck Colson, uh, started a ministry to prisoners. And one of the reasons why he started a ministry to prisoners was he himself was a prisoner. You see, Chuck Colson was a part of the inner circle of President Nixon's cabinet. And he was one of the individuals that was involved in the uh, Watergate scandal. And he said that he can prove through Watergate uh, the proof of the resurrection. He puts it this way, I know the resurrection is a fact. And Watergate proved it to me. How? He says, because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Every one of them was beaten, tortured, and stoned, and put in prison. They would have not endured that if it weren't true. How does he know this? Notice what he says. Watergate, the scandal of Watergate in the Nixon presidency, embroiled 12 of the most powerful people in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? He says, absolutely impossible. Why would these men, with great joy in their heart, live and die for a lie? Unless what they saw and what they experienced was the truth. Brothers and sisters, I'm here to tell you because I too and many of you have been changed by the risen Savior and Lord. Can we not amen that Jesus Christ has in fact risen from the dead? Amen? And that's why we're here. 
And that's what Easter is all about. The joy that our Savior and our Lord has fulfilled all that He said He was going to and now is presiding over the universe from heaven itself. We are so very blessed to be a part of His family. But not all are. Not all have received it. And so the last thing we've got to look at this morning is that the joy of Easter can be experienced by all who will receive it. Notice Peter goes on and he says to Cornelius, we have been commanded to preach to people and to testify that Jesus is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin through Jesus' name. So here's the amazing thing. Peter says, listen, all of human history from the prophets on have been defined by this Jesus. And the question this Easter that I have for you, has your life been defined by Jesus? Or are you simply trying to live life on your own? Peter says, we have the job, we have the task of proclaiming this good news, this joy of Easter, to any who will listen, and to extend it to all who will receive it. But how does one receive it? Notice he says, it is given to all, everyone who believes. It begins with faith. You and I can't work our way into heaven. You and I can't do enough good to get into heaven. We are told by the Bible, by the prophet in the Bible, that our most righteous deeds are but filthy rags before a holy God. And that we are dependent on the grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have to believe in Jesus. We have to believe. Well, what do we have to believe? Peter tells us. We have to believe that he is the one appointed by God. That he is the Messiah. He is the chosen one. He is the Savior of the world. And we believe that. And we put our faith and trust in that. And we follow him all the days of our life. That is what turning to Christ is all about. And it is done by faith. And what it allows for us is the forgiveness of sins. He goes on and he says, by faith, we believe. And we believe what? We believe that we can receive forgiveness of sin through the name of Jesus. And so we need to recognize that by believing in Jesus, we are saying, God, I'm a sinner. I'm in need of your grace. I'm in need of your mercy that apart from you, I can do nothing. And that you, on the cross of Calvary, you took my sins and you placed them there. And when you rose from the grave, my sins stayed there. And I was found in a new life in you, Jesus, a new birth by you, Jesus, that I would never be the same again. That though my sins were scarlet, Jesus has made them as white as snow. Now, what that does is it creates a bright future for us. A bright future. Notice that Jesus is the one who will preside as judge over the living and the dead, verse 42. There's a day coming, my friends. The Bible says that man uh, is appointed to die And then then comes judgment. We will all pay the debt that every person faces. And that's death. And at that moment, we will stand before God. And we will have the opportunity to do one of two things. We can try to convince God that He should let us into His heaven through all the great things we've done. But the Bible says we'll fail miserably in that. Or 
we can say and we can believe in our hearts right here and right now that Easter created a way where there was no way that through the work of Jesus Christ, you and I might have eternal life in Jesus Christ. By doing that in this life creates an opportunity for a life that there is to come, a life of God's peace, a life of God's blessing in a place called heaven. But the Bible speaks equally to the idea that there is a place called hell in a place where those who reject the message of Christ, who would rather live life on their own apart from Christ, are destined to go. But God amidst that says, I want you. Whoever will come, whoever will believe, will no wise be cast out. He'll not push you away because He's a God who wants you to experience His love and His mercy. And so this morning I ask you, do you have the joy of Easter? Do you have and have you experienced the joy of Easter? If you have never bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, let today be the day of your salvation. And it's just simply confessing your sins in a quiet prayer, asking the Lord to enter into your life and to be Lord and Savior, Master of your life. It's a prayer of dedication saying, Lord, I want to live by your ways, not my own. If you have never prayed that prayer, it can happen simply where you're at. In your own words, in your own heartfelt desires, the Bible says that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised Him from the dead, we will be saved. If you want to know more about that, talk to me after the service. Stop by our Welcome Center or any one of our ministry booths. We'll be able to tell you more about the gospel of Jesus Christ. But let me just add one more element because many of you already have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I want to uh, just take a moment and ask you, how much joy do you have because of Easter? Last night, I watched two teams walk off a basketball court without joy. Loyola and Kansas. And they looked sad. And they looked defeated. And they looked downtrodden. And they looked like their futures had been destroyed. And can I tell you, one of the pet peeves of this pastor is far too many Christians walk around like they've already lost the game. And then I saw the victors. And the victors are running around and they're jumping and they're hugging. Those were the Michigan and the Villanova teams and their fans screaming and proclaiming and rejoicing in what was to come. Brothers and sisters, let me remind you, as followers of Jesus Christ, we are not defeated. As followers of Jesus Christ, we are not given to despair. As followers of Jesus Christ, we are not losers. But as followers of Jesus Christ, because of the work that was done on the cross and the work that was done in that empty tomb, we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. Let's show the world that. Amen? Let's proclaim that. Let's be the most joy-filled people that our, our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers have ever seen. And the reason why we need to be joyful is we have now been given this gospel. Notice that Peter's job is to go and proclaim it to all. And we have been given that challenge. Why are we called to that? Why are we called to serve and honor God with those? Why are we called to far-flung places of the world? I want to close my message with a video that asks that question. Why should we as Christians reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Why do we do it? 
Why do we engage the world for gospel impact? Why do we make the sacrifices? Why do we give up the familiarity of our culture? Why do we give up the luxuries and comforts of our society? Why do we invest the time and money training for something others think is absolutely crazy? Why do we fall in love with people we've never before met and do everything in our power to live among them? Why do we traverse expansive oceans, dirt paths, rocky canyons, raging rivers, thick rainforests, snowy peaks, and blistering deserts? Why do we fly on airplanes with dangerous service records? Why do we ride on overpacked buses on broken roads? Why do we take leaky boats through uncertain waters? Why do we walk mile after mile after mile? Why do we choose to live in difficult environments, restricted areas, polluted urban centers, or remote rural villages? Why do we work so hard to get into places others are trying to leave? Places stricken by disease, war, poverty, corruption, and despotism. Why do we learn unfamiliar languages, become immersed in unfamiliar cultures, eat unfamiliar foods, and embrace lifestyles that make us unfamiliar to our own families? Why are we willing to help those that hate us, serve people that suspect us, and work for the good of some who at first wish we would just go away? Why do we raise countless dollars, invest countless hours, and shed countless tears for the billions and counting who have never heard the truth? Why do we obey the call of God to go into all the world, sharing the gospel and making disciples of all peoples? Why are we compelled by love and willing to risk everything to see even one person transformed by the good news of Jesus Christ? Because the tomb was empty.